Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Before I preach this week, I want us just to watch a short video. Now, I'll tell you up front, it's an advert. And it's an advert for Vodafone. And I'm telling you that because that isn't what I want you to concentrate on. I don't want you to feel that you have to rush out and immediately go and buy a new phone. But there's a message that runs through the advert. And I just want us, as we look at today's subject, to just have that message in the back of our minds. Abby, can you do the honours? Mayfly, it lives just for 24 hours. Just think, if we embraced life like the common mayfly, what a life it would be. Let's bear that in mind as we look at this week's subject. Over the past weeks, we've been looking at some of our key values as a church. And so far, we've looked at how it is important that we are a gospel-preaching church that is loving, that is righteous in its lifestyle, that is involved in world mission and reaching the unsaved in its community by both personal and public evangelism. And then Bob looked at the importance we placed on the Bible as the word of God and our final authority on issues. We've looked at how we can be a people who are assured of the grace of God in our lives and who are clear about all the benefits of the new covenant of being in Christ. And then last week, Joel preached, I think wonderfully, on being a church whose people are baptised in water and in the Holy Spirit and brought into a genuine life in the Spirit. 
And this week, we turn our attention to the next one of our key values. Being a church where God's presence is prized and where God is enthusiastically worshipped with genuine freedom for men and for women to worship publicly in the power of the Holy Spirit, to use spiritual gifts and to participate in body ministry. This follows on so naturally from last week's subject, which it included the importance to us as believers of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because as Jesus explained to the woman that he met at the well, this is what he said, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God desires us to worship him in the power of his Holy Spirit. Way back in 1646, a group of 121 Puritan clergymen gathered at Westminster. And they were tasked with the drawing up of the documents for the reformation of the Church of England. It's what became called the Westminster Confession. And the document they drew up became the principal doctrinal standard of reformed evangelical thought. And except for a few clauses... um, one of which, for example, declares the Pope to be the Antichrist, it remains the basis of modern Reformed theology. It's made up of 33 chapters and runs to some 150 pages. Now, the trouble with that was it was unreadable to anyone other than the clergy. And so they then went on and produced two other documents, which were called the Larger and the Shorter Catechisms. The Shorter Catechism consists of 107 questions and answers, and it was designed to allow it to be memorised. It was for beginners. And the larger catechism has about 196 questions and more full answers. And that was intended to be a more complete and exact representation of the confession. Now why am I going into that bit of history? Well, because the very first question is an underlying part of everything we believe. The first question in both of those catechisms is this. What is the chief end of man? And the answer? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's our chief end. That is our prime purpose for being. To glorify God. And to enjoy him forever. And that's why we hold this value so dear. 
It is the reason we were created. Reveling in God's presence, bringing glory to him through our praise and our worship, that is our prime calling. And it's why when we meet together, whatever the size, whatever the setting, that value has to be at the heart of the way we organise things. Our value needs to be that we are a church where God's presence is prized, where God is enthusiastically worshipped with genuine freedom for men and for women, to worship publicly in the Holy Spirit, to use the spiritual gifts that God gives us, and to participate in ministering one to another. I grew up in the Methodist church. Now in the Methodist church, one thing I would say is we knew how to sing. Hymns were sung with vigour. Some of those great Wesleyan ones from the past. Some that we still sing today and still have the power in them. But I went into my teenage years with only one model of worship to see. That of what we now would say is the traditional hymn prayer sandwich. The hymns were picked in advance. They were picked to tie in with the subject of the preaching. The numbers were put up on two boards at the front of the church so you could look them up in advance. The prayers all came from the minister. And once in a while, someone from the congregation might just be asked to read the lesson. But that was the level of contribution that we would expect to see. There was no room for spontaneity. And then one day, I was invited to go to a meeting of Southampton Community Church. Never had I imagined being among a people who were so genuinely pleased to be going to a church meeting. Who sang new songs with a passion and a joy. A people whose desire was to hear a sermon probably four times longer than the 13-minute story I was used to hearing. A preach that was based solidly on the Bible, that was relevant and had practical application. And do you know what? They sat spellbound for nearly an hour. And that evening... I encountered God in the midst of that body of Christ praising, worshipping, praying and earnestly hearing his word. I met with God and I was changed. And do you know what? Never again was I going to be happy with empty ritual because I had now seen something far closer to true worship. In one sense, that was my first real church meeting. And it set a benchmark for what I looked for in the future, in terms of worship, in general terms, but also about church specifically. 
that deep desire to encounter God with everyone there enthusiastically alive to the moving of God's Holy Spirit. What I later found out was that that was typical of what we read about worship in the New Testament. Sadly, so much of what happens in church today, even in so-called charismatic worship, can be a million miles from that. There are churches that describe themselves as charismatic, but that description can be applied just because they use a contemporary style of worship. And you know what saddens me? The all too familiar picture we see of people coming in late, of coming in distracted into our meetings, of meetings that have a sense of hurry that we have to get through them, and of worship that's just made up of the latest songs, whether they're from New Day, Grapevine, New Wine or Hillsong. I'm saddened when the word charismatic means to people little more than a lifted hand or the singing of a contemporary song. I'm saddened when believers gather with little or no expectation of an encounter. And I'm saddened when those who participate are mainly the preacher, the worship leader and just one or two others. I'm happy to say we don't often see that here. Yet people leave those church meetings Sunday by Sunday saying it was a good meeting when in fact, if we were honest, the worship was dull, not one gift of the Spirit was used and the sermon probably bored even the most dedicated. In contrast, I'm doing my best, yeah. In contrast, Paul was clearly passionate for something else. He was passionate for body ministry. Listen to what he wrote to the church in Rome. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith. 
if service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And then to the church in Corinth, he wrote this. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for the building up. If any speak in a tongue, let only two or at the most three in each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. You know, it's that passion and that very practical teaching that we have to turn to in order to address this most important of our values. What is it that we should seek each and every time we come together as church? I want to this morning just highlight a few key things. The first is this. We should be encountering God's empowering presence. When we talk about worship, we use all sorts of theological terms. Glory. Transcendence. We talk about the imminence of God. But what do we really mean? This is what Paul says in Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness within our spirit that we are children of God. At its heart... Our worship should have a childlike intimacy. It's the cry, it's the desire of our innermost soul. And it is that love of God set loose in our hearts that captivates us. Someone once described it as our hearts melting within us, just like wax before a fire. With the love of God, our Saviour. It is this desire to be satisfied with nothing less that needs to be in our every thought when we come together. We need to be prepared, like Jacob, to wrestle with our own flesh, 
to get to that place of wanting nothing but an encounter with God. Or to be like Moses, who in crying out to God, God show me your mercy, knew that it could be at the very cost of his life. And then secondly, we should be experiencing freedom in the Holy Spirit. Paul declared this boldly. He said, for freedom Christ has set us free. From his writing to the church in Galatia, it's clear that he was passionate that believers should receive the Holy Spirit by faith. He said this to them in chapter 3. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Believers were clearly baptised in the Holy Spirit. And that's something Joel spoke about last week. But he saw dangers. And he warned the church of it. The gifts shouldn't be perceived as something we can get through skill, through effort or for practice. They're not something over which we have any rights at all. They're called the charismata. Their title means they are undeserved gifts freely given to us. They're given. They're not bought. They're undeserved. They're not earned. They're gifts from a loving, heavenly Father. They're gifts to encourage us, to build us up, and in the process, build his church. And so we must take care that our worship is always centred on what is important. We mustn't become man-dependent. We mustn't become man-centred. It mustn't be the quality of the performance of those who lead us that are the most significant factor in our worship. Although our heart's desire will always be to give of our best. Our way of doing things must never get in the way. All of those things are a far cry from the freedom in the spirit in the early church. And it was that freedom that resulted in an explosion of spiritual gifts. And as a result, Paul found the need to teach on it. To teach on how it could be contained and how it could be ordered so that God's voice could be clearly heard through it. But like David, we should be unrestrained in our enthusiasm. When the Ark of the Covenant was being brought back to Jerusalem, for the Jews that was depicting the very presence of God returning to them, he was unrestrained. Dressed in nothing other than a linen ephod, Having shed his royal garments, this is what it says in the message version in 2 Samuel 6, it says he danced with great abandon. 
He'd already shed his clothes because they were getting in the way. He'd stripped down to his underwear so that he could praise his God with everything he had. Now there were those who thought that was undignified for a king. But David was clear. In his celebration of God, he said, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. He was more concerned with what God saw than what his fellow men saw. He was fully prepared to be undignified in man's eyes as long as it was pleasing to his God. Now in the modern church, I've never yet been in a meeting that threatened to become undignified. Not in the way David meant. Nor one that was close to being the disorderly church that Paul was addressing in his letter to the Corinthians. We've got a long way to go before we hit that. Thirdly, we should come with an eagerness to see the church built up through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. When we come together, our hunger to see and receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit should be born out of a genuine love for one another. As a result of their use, we should have the expectation that each and every member of the body is strengthened. The gifts are just that. They're gifts. They're not based on merit. They don't confer status. They're not there so that we should enjoy notoriety. Indeed, as Paul observes... If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. The gifts are for the building up and the strengthening of the church. And then fourthly, we should be expectant of worship that brings glory to Jesus. Paul tells us that. He says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. When we talk about the use of the spiritual gifts... It has to include the preaching and the teaching gifts as well. And faith comes from hearing the message. Worship begins to arise as we hear the word of the Lord and respond to it. And anything that tries to minimise the preaching of God's word can only result in shadow worship. And Christians with shadow roots that will wilt in the heat that the world puts on us. The word of God and our worship pulls us out of those influences of the world which would put ourselves at the centre and other things second. 
when we come to the preaching in our worship, we should be experiencing a powerful put on our lives. Instead, putting all our hurts and pains, our happiness, our hopes and our dreams second to the all-surpassing truth that Jesus is Lord. One test that Paul uses with spiritual gifts is that the unbelieving heart will be laid bare and new worshippers will be added to a worshipping community. By the grace of God, we have seen that happen. We have seen that happen amongst us. As in our worship and through the gifts, people have found more and more freedom. Let's raise our expectation. Let's hope for so much more that the glory might just go to Jesus. So what should our worship be like? Because in a minute, we have an opportunity to make, a, make another step this morning. In his book, The Radical Christian, Arthur Wallace painted a picture of what he just thought it might be like. It's only one man's view, having read the book of Acts, as to what worship in the early church was like. But it gives a taste. And I'll tell you what, every time I read this, it excites me. We look around. What a cross-section. There are Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, young and old, rich and poor, all mingling freely and without distinction. We have only to see the way they greet each other to know that these Christians really do love each other. An elder at the front with a strong melodious voice commences to sing a psalm. Instantly the buzz of conversation ceases and the congregation takes up the singing. One thing have I decided for the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. They sing these last words over and over like a refrain. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple until they seem to be burnt into everybody's spirit. As the psalm ends, a man at the front playing a lyre commences a hymn which is sung through several times. Other songs follow. Then, one, then two sing to one another responsively. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord of hosts is his name. Comes from someone standing near us. Then from the other side comes an answering voice. Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. Then the first singer again. And we will go forth with him to share the spoils of victory. And so on. 
this inspired singing seems to ignite the worship and the whole company is then caught up in spiritual singing, some in their native tongue and some in their unknown tongue. And despite ourselves, we're caught up too. We've never heard anything like this before. Harmony without melody, swelling into a glorious crescendo with people breaking out in spontaneous applause and then dying away to a whisper. It's as though it's controlled by some unseen conductor. We look about us, as well as the great joy and the exuberant praise. There is an awe of God here. A middle-aged woman not far from us, eyes shut, hands raised, is lost in the worship of her God. And then her eyes are riveted by the face of a young man. Only last week, he was an idolater, whispers Timothy. His face ecstatic with joy. This must be what Paul meant by joy unspeakable and full of glory. There's a pause in the continuous flow of worship. An elderly man with unmistakable features of a Jew rises to pray. His hands and his eyes are lifted heavenward. His speech is simple, but he knows how to touch the throne of God. He prays for the emperor, for local rulers, for the nation, and for the word of God to prosper. Hardly is it through when a young man is on his feet, praying fervently for the progress of the gospel in the city, that every believer will witness boldly, that God will stretch out his hand to heal, and signs and wonders might be done in Jesus' name. At this, a man breaks in with a testimony. For some time they'd been trying to share the good news with his parents, apparently without success. But this week his father was seized with a raging fever, and fearing he was going to die, he rebuked the sickness in Jesus' name, and his father was healed. My parents are here, he continues, pointing to an elderly couple beside him, and now they want to hear about the way. Spontaneous applause and shouts of hallelujah greet the news, followed by another wave of praise. There are further prayers for imprisoned saints, for those suffering persecution and for testimony in other parts. There are utterances in tongues, each followed by an interpretation in the form of an inspired prayer or praise. There are visions, revelations and prophecies, bringing simple words of exhortation and encouragement. It seems as though everyone has their hymn, or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or interpretation. All are evidently free to participate as the Spirit leads. The men with heads bare, the women with heads but not faces veiled. It's just how one person imagined it. But as I read that, I think, ah, oh, to be in a meeting like that. Is it just me? <coughs> Is it just me? Shall I tell you what? We have the opportunity this morning to be in a meeting just like that. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that at Pentecost you poured out your spirit on the early church and the world was never the same again. Father, we thank you that you continue to pour your spirit out on your church and the world will never be the same again. Father, just like you inspired that worship in the early church. I want to ask you to inspire our worship this morning. Father, send your Holy Spirit amongst us, even as we just consider that now. Start a work in our hearts. Where we're captive to tradition, where we're captive to ways of thinking. Just start to set us free from that now. But the glory might go to Jesus this morning. We invite you this morning to inhabit our praises, to work in our lives, and to move us from one shade of glory to another. that we might with renewed energy, increased vigour and greater freedom do what is our prime purpose in bringing our worship to you and enjoying you forever. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk.